Well, our writer tonight has uh, written a historical fiction novel based in the late 19th and early 20th century, which features one of the most important things to actually happen last century, the discovery of huge reserves of oil in the Middle East, uh, Persia in particular. That discovery led to many things. Um, Some of the geopolitical power struggles in the Middle East today can probably be traced back to that. But also, uh, Britain managed to secure the flow of some of this Persian oil for itself, and that led to the switching of the British Navy from coal to oil in 1911. Uh, Looking back now, running ships on oil, not coal, must seem like it would have been a no-brainer. It was actually very much opposed by many of the powers that be, and it took the persistence of quite an extraordinary character named Jackie Fisher to make it happen. Now, our writer is Paul Ashford Harris. He's got a fascinating story of his own, as I indicated. He's the grandson of a renowned occultist and suffragette, which he'll have to tell us about. He's the son of an English baronet. He grew up mainly in New Zealand. He's written three books, two plays, five kids' books. He's been the chairman of the Abundant on Trust, World Wildlife Fund Australia, and he's got lots more strings to his bow. His book is called Love, Oil and the Fortunes of War. Paul, welcome to Nightlife. Thank you. I know your last historical fiction book was written about Admiral Willem Canaris, who was the chief of intelligence in Germany during World War II. It seems like you're very much drawn to individual historical figures. Yeah, well, Canaris was a very interesting character and um, he, uh, he, uh, he, the story that I wrote was mainly involved in his battle in the Falklands back in right at the beginning of the First World War. And uh, then his journey from there to head of the the Wormack, uh Secret Service, in effect, and he um, became an opponent of Hitler, which was extremely risky, of course. And um, they had a couple of goes at assassinating his, Hitler unsuccessfully, as we all know. Uh, but the result in the end was that about three weeks before the end of the war. Uh, the First World War, Canaris was strung up by piano wire in a concentration camp. And uh, so, you know, it was a very grisly end. But uh, he was a very interesting guy. Yeah. Um, And obviously so is Jackie Fisher, who is the character that I think you were were first drawn to. Um, Tell us about Jackie Fisher and how you came across him. Well, Jackie Fisher um, is an amazing guy, really, because as I think... You know, most people would be aware the um, the establishment and the social class system in the UK is still strong and was very strong back at, in, around that turn of the century. And Jackie Fisher was not part of that at all. He was born into a... His father was actually a member of the, um, the British government in Sri Lanka or Ceylon as it was then, but he retired and bought a plantation and that didn't work out very well. So... Jackie was born into quite a poverty-stricken situation and was shipped off to England to his grandfather, who also didn't have any money. But he had a um, – his his godmother was very well-connected and uh, she took him on and she realised pretty rapidly that, that he was actually a very smart young man and through her connections – it wasn't very difficult to get into the Navy, but he got into the Navy and his sheer capacity got him through and up the ranks in a way that you would definitely not expect given his background so that eventually he ended up as first sea lord, which is effectively 
the Admiral of the Ocean-Going Fleet, you have the um, the First Lord of the Admiralty who was, became Churchill, mm. but that's not a seagoing appointment. That's a that's really a political appointment. Yeah. So he did it obviously with his skill. Did he make some enemies along the way, people who looked at him and thought, oh, hang on, you shouldn't be in this position? Oh, oh without a doubt, without a doubt, yeah. Um, there was a very strong sort of Etonian Oxbridge connection with with the top end of society, particularly in the Navy. And uh, a lot of them thought, you know, who is this jumped up little man from Salon, you know, and he and he had a dusky complexion as well, which didn't go down well, but it was actually caused by malaria. But um, so, yeah, he wasn't, he wasn't welcome in the ranks, but they just couldn't, they couldn't put him down. He was just, you know, just one of those people that was unstoppable and, and people could see that he, yeah, he was going to do things. And the British Navy in, before the start of the First World War was around 440 ships. That's a huge Navy. And he called it a miser's horde of useless junk. <laughs> I mean, for the first sea lord to call his own Navy a miser's horde of useless junk would have really upset them. And he, he also knew from his own studies and from engineering that um, the ships would be far better on a whole number of uh, for, for a whole number of reasons if they were switched from coal to oil, but you know, England had coal in Wales, but they had no oil at all. Mm, yes, hence the importance of the, the search for oil in Persia. Yeah. I just want to go stay with Jackie Fisher being this outsider for a moment, um, because you were at Cambridge when you were eighteen. Although you'd been you'd grown up in New Zealand, so you you know turned up with your uh, New Zealand accent, and apparently you didn't even like rugby. So, what did you observe there of that kind of born to rule attitude? Well, I didn't really take much notice of it to start with, because it's like you're in an institution. I mean, it's you know, a prison, a boarding school, a live-in university, they're all institutions, so you all lump in together. But um, I could see that some of them didn't mix with others and somebody had some of them had different interests. And I happened to sit down almost the first week that I was there with a group of Italians, and it was quite entertaining because the um, one of them, of course, became the master of the fox hunt, you know, so... I, very Italian thing to do. Yeah. Anyway, um, but it turned out that uh, a few years later he misbehaved himself and um, had a stint in jail oh. <laughs> and was accused by the judge of being a cad. So sometimes... <laughs> I didn't know a cad was an official charge. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think a cad's a great expression. But anyway, so sometimes... Um, just being at the top of the establishment doesn't necessarily mean you behave yourself. In fact, quite often it means you don't. Yep, exactly. So so Jackie Fisher introduced dreadnought ships into the Navy. I've always wondered why were they called dreadnoughts? Well, it was his family motto. Um, what was it? Serve God and dreadnought. Oh, so just dread nothing. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. That's so he christened them and he commissioned them. And they were, you know, they were very... Um, Scary machine, basically. They were big, they were fast, they had, you know, a lot, but, um, but they needed oil mm. to make mm. them. His target was to get the ships to run at over 25 knots, and that was the only way they could do that. Because the Germans were building up their navy at the same yeah, they time, were. weren't they? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm. So the threat was there.
Yeah. Uh, my guest is um, Paul Ashford Harris. His book is called Love, Oil and the Fortunes of War. And he sort of wrapped together the stories of three historical figures, one of whom is Jackie Fisher, who was this extraordinary uh, first sea lord of the British Admiralty who desperately wanted the, uh, the ships to run on oil, not coal. How did you end up tying, because you've tied together his story, Gertrude Bell, and then a bloke called William Darcy, who I'd, I'd never heard of before. Did you, you know, were you always going to write a book about Jackie Fisher or did you just start researching and think, oh, this will make a book? How did it all work to come to what it is now? Well, yeah, it was quite a coincidence, really, because um, there's a book called um, Fisher's Face, because one of the things about Jackie Fisher, he had the most extraordinary face, absolutely compelling and there's a picture of him. It's actually on the cover of the book. Um, and, it, you know, he just is one of those guys that, um, you know, would catch your attention. And so I was looking at him and then um, I happened to read the book about Gertrude Bell and I thought, oh, you know, that's really interesting. I didn't connect them up at all. And then I started, I don't know how I came across William Knox Darcy. I can't really remember, to be honest, but... I sort of dug up Darcy and I was looking at that and then I realised that Darcy and um, Fisher liked to go to Czechoslovakia. Darcy Darcy family were kicked out of England fundamentally and they went as far away as they could possibly get, which happened to be Rockhampton, which, you know, is an extraordinary place to go in the 1850s. Anyway, so Darcy and his family arrive there and he happens to cotton on to the fact that the Mount Morgan mine is just starting to open. And uh, so he and one of the other people was Walter Hall, which is now the Walter and Eliza Hall. So, you know, they got hold of Mount Morgan mine and developed it and it turned into the largest gold mine in the world. So Darcy made a lot of money. And uh, he didn't much like Rockhampton, so he decided to go back to England and basically give two fingers to the establishment <laughs> in England and say, I'm back, you can't get rid of me, which is, that, that's what he did. And then um, somebody came to him and he had a lot, a lot of money, most of which he spent on racehorses with Edward Seventh. Anyway, that's another part of the story. But um, someone came to him and said, look, I can get you this exploration title in Persia for about three quarters of Persia for virtually nothing. So he said, oh, yeah, we might do that. So they did that. He never went to Persia, but he got this other guy to go out and, and start looking for oil. Well, they had a hell of a time. They couldn't find any. It went all over the place. They were about to give up. And suddenly they struck this massive gusher. Mm. And um, very soon after that happened, Darcy, they used to like to go to Marienbad and take the waters and what's now Czechoslovakia. And, and uh, Fisher liked to do that too. So they ran into each other there. And started talking about the oil, I hey? He needed about, it. Yep. <laughs> and Darcy had Darcy it. Darcy had oil and Fisher needed it. Yeah. Then we have Gertrude. So I'm sort of listening to reading Gertrude's story and really interested in her exploration. She's a female T.E. Lawrence, a friend of Lawrence. And, uh, you know, they're peas in the pod, the two of them. No connection as far as I can see. But then I discover that um, Gertrude's half-sister, married Admiral Richmond, and Admiral Richmond uh, was a phenomenally able uh, naval officer, and he was one of Fisher's chief advisors. So that's a huge coincidence. Mm. So um, in the book, you'll see I've talked about the wedding and how Fisher goes to the wedding, and 
um, and Gertrude goes too. And uh, that's not actually quite right because Gertrude couldn't make it because she was exploring. But anyway, <laughs> we'll, we'll let that one through. But so you basically so, took these three and sort of yeah. Tw- yeah. I think you had a lot of fun imagining what they would have said to each well, other. Well, that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, I understand you wrote this book, Paul, in a small part because you're hoping it will be an entertaining enough version of history for your adult children to, uh, to, to read the whole way through. Why, why that? Why are you sort of interested in that idea of um, it being a book that your kids would read or your adults? Well, I, I think, you know, I think history is incredibly interesting. And, um, I mean, I think, you know, we probably all remember when we were, when we were at school that, you know, sitting through history classes when you sort of you had to learn the births and deaths of all the English monarchs, and that wasn't terribly compelling. Um, so I think yeah, a lot of people have come up with the idea that, you know, history's not really that great, but these are real people, and I think, you know, and they are interesting, and the things that they've done are really important for good or for bad. And so I thought if I can write a book that can entertain people who would normally say, look, I wouldn't read a history book, um, then, you know, they might find some of these things really interesting and then they can follow the ones up, the things that they really find interesting and discard the others. But um, so I thought, you know, this is a challenge. So that's that's how the first two books really got started. And how? what did the children have to say? Well, the second one, which was called Beneath the Condor's Wing, they um, they just about kept them up all night. But that was, yeah, that's a really, I didn't, I mean, you, you would notice with this book that I, I don't really spend much time dwelling on things, you know, it moves along. <laughs> it does move along, yes. Yeah, that's right. So the other books move along as well. So this book, I think it's 269 pages, probably should be five or 600, really, you know, if you were going to. Just, yeah, drag up yeah. some love scenes and that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So <laughs> I knew that that probably wouldn't work. So I've really cramped it in and yeah. I put in a lot of things that are a bit sort of side issues. I've got this interest in rabbit holes, which I go down and I go off on tangents and things. But, but um, you know, that's self-indulgent and... <laughs> Um, anyway, <laughs> I did read. I reckon the second half in about an hour and a half last night. Did you? So okay. Look, look, worked worked for me. But yeah, I do agree. I've, I've, I people often say history is so boring, and I think there's no boring history, just boring storytellers. Exactly. Or, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, that's um, why so you have to bring the pe- the people alive. I think. Yeah. yeah. That's, so that's it is important. thumbs up from your kids then. What's that? You, you succeeded with your children though. Yeah. Yeah. Although. Uh, one of them's still not quite got to the end yet, but you know, it's been distracted <laughs> <laughs> by his own children. <laughs> now, I do want you to tell us, um, because, look, you can't resist, uh, about your grandmother, Lady Frida Harris. I know you've actually written a lot about your family, your own story in another book, haven't you? I, I did, yeah, mm. yeah. But anyway, tell us about her. Well, yeah, she was an interesting character, all right. She... Um, uh, she married my uh, my grandfather, and he was a member of the liberal. He was a liberal member of parliament in the UK, and so and he had been to school with Churchill at Harrow, and he was in the war cabinet, and so he and Churchill were pretty good friends. and And Percy was a pretty respectable sort of guy, but he married Frida, and Frida went about her own business basically. And the suffragette thing. She and Emily Pankhurst were great friends. In fact, we've got Emily Pankhurst's fan, would you believe, in our no. in our house at home. Yeah, um, it's a beautiful old thing. I think there's a photograph in it somewhere. But 
Um, so she and Emily Pankhurst were great friends, but as you know, most of the suffragettes got thrown in jail pretty darn quick, but Frida never did, but probably because her husband was a member of parliament, and that <laughs> yeah, would have been quite embarrassing. Been, yes, going a bit so you can't far. do that. Uh, but then she got involved with the uh, cult and the tarot cards, and Alistair Crowley, who the British press called the wickedest man in the world. And a lot of people don't know about Alistair Crowley, but, I mean, Crowley was the hero of all the... Uh, pop musicians back and, you know, Black Sabbath and the Beatles and all those sort of people. Really? No, I've, I've actually never heard of him before. Well, yeah, if you, okay. if you, I mean, you're too young to have you ever had LPs, but if, if you're my no, age. No, I had a couple. Well, Sergeant Pepper's <laughs> Lonely Heart Club Band, look on the cover, Alistair Crowley. Right, okay, yeah. so he was the wickedest man in the world. So yeah. what, what, what did he do? What well, he was in the black wicked? magic in right. a very significant way. And um, what's interesting is that, you know, I think I had thought, and I'm sure other people do too, that, you know, the main religions that were operating in Europe and in England were, you know, the Catholic, the Anglican, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I never thought of the black magic or the tarot thing. But actually, there was a significant amount of this alternative stuff going on. And there were people, you know, communicating with the dead and doing all sorts of weird and wonderful things. And, uh, you know, when you start forking out of the surface about, you, you discover there's a lot of stuff going on. Mm. And uh, so she was involved in all that. How, and she produced a, a set of famous tarot cards, didn't she? Yeah, she did. Well, Alistair Crowley wanted to, you know, his whole thing was something called the Book of Thoth, which was supposed to be dictated by the god Horus to him and Frida in the Great Pyramid at oh. Cheops. Anyway, so the Book of Thoth was a sort of, you know, Bible of a sort, and um, and then there were the tarot. So he wanted illustrations for the tarot, and there are seventy-two cards, and a lot of cards. And it took so he he got Frida to do the paintings, and um, it took her about five years to do them because yeah. he kept saying, "No, no, that's not good enough." And uh, anyway. Eventually, she did them, and they, they are very intricate. They're, they're great paintings in a lot of ways. I've, still, I've got two of them on the wall at home, just picked at random, and I've got a set of the cards. The cards are still being sold. Wow. But uh, if you go to any of the shops that sell that sort of thing, you'll find a set of Frida, Lady Frida Harris's tarot cards. And is that what you would ask for? Yeah. Oh, you could ask for the tarot cards. What sets have you got? And, in, and they'll probably say... And we've got set by Lady Frida Harris. And the interesting thing, well, at least I think it's interesting, is the wife of a baronet is different from the wife of a lord. So she's not supposed to call herself Lady Frida Harris. She's supposed to call herself Lady Harris. Mm-hmm. If you're the wife of a lord, you call yourself Lady Frida Harris. But anyway, Frida decided she wasn't going to be pushed around. She was calling her to call herself what she, what she wanted to call herself. So she called herself Lady Frida Harris. But there's a lot of tut-tutting about, you know, doing that. <laughs> but she didn't care. So how did she get away with it, though? Well, exactly. Well, I think you've got to realise then the press and the, you know, didn't stick their noses into all this sort of thing, especially if it involved the establishment. Mm. It was in the book. You've probably seen Edward VII was a very naughty boy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and that, you know, never really leaked out into the British press. <laughs> I think it's much better known now. You know, <laughs> one of my texts says, oh, Alistair Crowley is legendary. And yeah, uh, Cam at Tara says, Ozzy Osbourne has a song called Mr Crowley. 
Really? Yeah. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Well, I think we might need to see if we've got that in the system. <laughs> I don't know how headbanging it may or may not be, but I might, I'll see if we've got a copy of that. There you go. So, and so she was, um, as you said, she was friends with um, Emily Pankhurst. Did yeah. she take part in suffragette you know, oh, yeah. marches? Absolutely. Or? Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing that she did was after my grandfather died, she got involved with um, a, a, a dance group that had come from Ceylon, now Sri Lanka, called the Ram Kapal Dance Group. And she got quite, a, she did the backdrops for their theatrical production. And they went back to Ceylon and she followed them. And uh, she sort of wandered around on the sets while they were doing things. And they started, they ended up making a film called Elephant Walk. And the film had Peter Finch and I've forgotten a a very well-known English Mm -hmm. actress in it. And she got sick and had to go off the set and the actress that was taken out of America to finish this film was Elizabeth Taylor. Oh, wow. So back in the archives you'll find a film called Elephant Walk with uh, Peter Finch and Elizabeth Taylor, which is a pretty average film. Anyway, Frida was wandering around on the set of that doing paintings and goodness knows what else. And eventually she went through India and she went up to Kashmir and lived on a houseboat and that's where she died. She's oh. buried up there. Oh, wow. What a fascinating woman. And the houseboat's still there. Really? Yeah. Oh, houseboat wow. Starlight, if you want a holiday in houseboat. Sri Lanka. <laughs> on Lady Frida Harris's houseboat. Well, it's not anymore. She left it to her houseboy, Sharban, when she died. Oh. Not to me, unfortunately. On, on the, <laughs> okay, on the houseboat that used to be hers. I do have this a pair of tarot cards around, though, if Probably, you happen to be yeah, staying there. That's right. um, now, someone else says, uh, yeah, Jimmy Page owns Alistair Crowley's house. No, no, I don't know where Alistair Crowley's house was. Oh. Yeah, I don't know where that... Lots of people know all about Alistair Crowley, and I feel like, um, yes, I've, I'm, I'm very late to the Alistair Crowley party. Oh, and Alem says, I've got a set of those cards somewhere. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, oh, there wow. you go. Yeah. So have you ended up with, uh, you dabble in the occult? No, I'm very boring, basically. My father used to say, a lot of damn nonsense, you know, and yeah. so I was, I mean, brought up, brought up in rural New Zealand is about as far away from that sort of thing as you're ever going to be, so... It didn't enter my consciousness until after I really was left university in England. I didn't know anything about it. So what did your father make of his mother? Uh, eccentric. Oh, well, look, they, they did. His, his mother and father did what English always did in those days. The English just seven. They whacked them off to boarding school as fast as they could and got a nanny and then went off and did whatever they wanted to do themselves. Mm. Came back and said sort of, hello, dear, once a week. And so I don't think there were... The connections were that strong, really. Yeah. And he went out to New Zealand. My father went out to New Zealand and, uh, you know, when he was in his early or well, late 20s and married an Australian girl, born in Cobar, would you believe? <laughs> anyway, so, um, yeah, so they weren't that – they didn't spend time with each other. All right, so no, no occult uh, for them passed no, down No, definitely no occult in New, rural New Zealand, no. <laughs> Come on, you never know what's lurking under the surface. Well, there might be other things, but it's not the occult. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Paul, thank you so much for coming in tonight and talking to us about love, oil, the fortunes of war, and a little bit about Lady Frida Harris too. Oh, it's my pleasure, and yeah, thank you very much for having me. Uh, That is Paul Ashford Harris. His book is Love, Oil, and the Fortunes of War. 
You've been listening to a Nightlife podcast. For more great conversations about the issues that impact you, as well as features on travel and food, head to the Nightlife webpage. You'll find it at abc.net.au slash nightlife. You don't need to be a night owl to enjoy the nightlife.